0: Ascot. Maidenhead. Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell. Wokingham. Wokingham, Henley, Henley. Reading. OK, hello! The Voice, River Radio, of the Thames Valley. Black, writer, black, writer.
1: Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We've got the latest news on books and authors. And we're chatting to the author, Simon Durnford. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages. Good morning to you all and I'm with Julian. So good morning Julian, how are you today?
2: Well I'm very well, thank you Heather. Good morning to you on this crisp, crisp autumn day. Uh, Absolutely, yes, it's fabulous isn't Mm. it? I've got to say,
1: I'm really pleased autumn is in the air. Mm. Although saying that, I am going on holiday next week to the sunshine. So that's a bit mean, isn't it? (laughs) It is rather. Saying that. So every week on Turning Pages, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. Because, of course, great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme.
2: And as usual, we have a bumper-filled hour design specially for you this week. We have a special edition for you, particularly because we have a guest in the studio with us today, the author Simon Dernford, who has written excellent new book, Men at Arms, Six Centuries of the Military Knights of Windsor. Simon will be with us all this morning. But to start the show, as is our custom, we have been scouring the newspapers to tease and winkle out those interesting bits of book news for you.
1: Absolutely. So we're going to start with our quick roundup of the book stories that we've spotted that are interesting to hopefully to all of us. Now, my first thing is an Agatha Christie story. And historian Lucy Worsley is on the literary circuit at the moment. She reckons she has solved the biggest Agatha Christie mystery of all time, which is, of course, Christie herself vanishing in December 1926 Mm -hmm. for 11 days at the height of her fame. The press, of course, had a field day with the real-life mystery after her car was found abandoned on a surrey hillside now during the police search it emerged that her husband had had a younger lover and it became accepted that christie had wanted to frame him mm-hmm. especially as when she was found she was using the name of her of the lover as um she was found in a hotel in Harrogate, and Christy was using the name of her husband's lover um, to sign in as the guest. Ah,
2: right, as the registered name. Yes.
1: Mm. So Worsley has written a new biography of Christy, and she has identified that she was in fact suffering from a rare mental condition, where she actually took on a new identity to escape the mental trauma of her, of her life. Now, existing in this sort of fugue state meant that when Archie, the husband, went to the hotel, Christie is said not to have recognised him. Mm. So poor Agatha Christie wasn't trying to frame her husband, but was coping with a serious mental condition.
2: Good grief. Interesting.
1: And, of course, Lucy Worsley has written a book all about that.
2: Yes, I do like Lucy Worsley. I think she's very nice. It's yes. lovely. Now, I have one here, a handwritten letter um, by John Steinbeck, uh, written in reply to his 14-year-old son, is being offered for sale at auction. Now, his son had written to his father explaining that he had fallen in love and that it was serious. His father's reply is now held up to be one of the greatest expositions of love, endlessly republished and read out at weddings. Now, the letter is full of crossings out as Steinbeck was working his way through the reply uh, to give the best response, because his son had told him that this was not puppy love, and Steinbeck had begun to write about puppy love and then started crossing it out. Um, He then goes on to say, First, if you are in love, that is a good thing. That's about the best thing that can happen. Happen to anyone.
1: Oh, I can see that would be perfect yes, at a wedding. Yes. Now, a Jane Austen first edition has just sold for a record £375,000. Gosh. Now, it was actually an inscribed copy of Emma, which Austen sent to the governess of her brother's children. And the character of Anne Weston is partly based on her. Um, So Jane Austen had signed it, so that's quite Mm, exciting. It is. (coughs) And particularly, brilliantly, the uh, US buyer wanted it to stay in England. Oh, that's good. So that was really good. So Mm. a US um, gentleman person bought the book, but... Donated it to Chaunton House in Hampshire, which, of course, was once owned by Austin's brother. Oh. So if you want to have a look at that inscribed edition, pop down to Chaunton House.
2: Mm, indeed. Well, of course, this is the season for uh, for prizes and the Nobel Prize for Literature has been awarded to Annie Erno for the courage and clinical acuity with which she uncovers the roots, estrangements and collective restraints of personal memory. Now Ernö who writes novels about daily life in France and is one of her country's most acclaimed authors had been among the favorites to win the prize. Now the Nobel Prize for literature is worth 10 million Swedish krona which is roughly a very handsome 840,000 pounds. Oh that's not bad. Not bad at all. And goes to the writer deemed to be in the words of Alfred Nobel's will the person who shall have produced in the field of literature the most outstanding standing work in an ideal direction. Now, Anders Olsen, who is the chairman of the Nobel Committee, said that in her work, uh, no, consistently and from different angles examines a life marked by strong disparities regarding gender, language and class. And it was her first, uh, her fourth book, Laplace, that was her literary breakthrough and now a contemporary classic in France.
1: Yes, so not very well known over no, here. no. Uh, So her books are translated. So Laplace, of course, is A Man's Place. A Man's Place, Place. yes. And um, is available... But um, probably bookshops would have to order it.
2: Probably so, but I, I imagine what will happen now is that the the, 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 the British pub, the UK publisher of of uh, yes. will start uh, to um, reissue um, the books if they're if they're not um, readily yes. available. Yes, I'm which sure is a great so. thing as well for yeah, authors absolutely. winning these prizes.
1: So well done. Yes, fantastic. indeed. Now a Charles Dickens story has hit the headlines, and it's about Queen's guitarist Brian May. Yeah. And he's helping to bring the Charles Dickens fascination with ghosts to life. Of course, October, mm-hmm. we've got Halloween coming up. And uh, the Charles Dickens Museum has got a ghostly display on. And Brian May is a collector of stereoscopic images. And um, he has lent the museum um, images from his vast <laughs> archive featuring Victorian Ghosts and of Dickens himself. Now the exhibition is to, is called "To Be Read at Dusk: Dickens, Ghosts, and the Supernatural," and it features in Dickens' old house, which is near Russell Square mm. in London. Yes, have you visited it?
2: I haven't, because um, they, they, they didn't they wasn't it closed and refurbished? I think at some point, and it's now open again. Is that is it Doughty Street? It is Doughty or Street. Goes, yes, yeah, yeah. forty
1: eight Doughty 48. Street. Yes, I should yes. go. Yeah, so it's really really close. It's mm. in the centre of town. So Brian May, of course, has this fabulous collection of these 19th century stereo images so basically it's two photographs of the same image done at a slightly different angle so when you view them Mm. through this thing called a stereo stereographic thing <laughs> yes. Can't remember the word. Um, you can actually see it in 3D, which is pretty amazing.
2: Oh, right. OK, yes.
1: And uh, fabulously, he started a collection when he discovered that Weetabix were giving away stereo cards as uh, in their boxes when he was a young boy, which is marvellous. And he's now got 100,000 photographs. In grief. So the curator of the exhibition reckons that Dickens probably felt the same way about ghosts as Scrooge did, which is more gravy than grave, <laughs> which is fabulous. Yeah. But he obviously he recognised the power that ghostly tales could wield.
2: Indeed, indeed. Now, my uh, story. This is more really of a film story, but as, as you know, I do tend to chip into films from time you to do. time. You um, do, and it, uh, uh, it's it's, uh, it, and it's based on Fox. Sorry, Scott Fitzgerald's masterpiece, The Great Gatsby. So we thought we'd include it. Um, And fans of The Great Gatsby can now own a slice of the bootlegger's jazz age lifestyle because the 1928 Rolls-Royce Phantom Ascot Sport Phaeton, driven by Robert Redford in the film, is going on sale. Now, it's expected to make a seven-figure sum. Now, this is rather interesting. Sensitive to the rare and iconic status of the car, the producers... Um, of the film commissioned duplicate fibreglass bumpers for the scene when Daisy Buchanan runs over her husband's mistress. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Jolly good too. You don't <laughs> want to damage the car. No, exactly. Because
2: <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be worth seven figures after that, I'm sure. Now in the book, um, Gerald describes the car as being terraced with a labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns. Referring to the fact that the that his car was bald, or rather open topped, with the driver separated from the passenger by a full glass windscreen
1: Oh fantastic yeah. and
2: what a lovely description mm,
0: a yes. labyrinth
1: of windshields wind that mirrored a dozen suns lovely yeah now for the past 150 years Victor Hugo's mistress has been wielded uh, has sorry been widely depicted as a failed actress oh. who seduced Hugo to bask in reflected glory and live off his earnings now unsurprisingly it can now be recognised that she is in fact an inspirational figure who not only saved Hugo's life but also the first draft of Les Miserables his most celebrated novel. Now two new books use letters that depict her as resourceful and full of intellectual curiosity while remaining devoted to her lover tolerant of his jealous and controlling manner. And it's good to see women being given the due they deserve.
2: Indeed, indeed. Now, finally, um, Amazon, the online retailer, looks as though it is selling fake versions of new books. Uh, these books are summaries or previews of titles that actually only offer a few hundred words of poorly written copy. Uh, for example, recently a newspaper serialized a new book by Valentine Lowe called Courtiers and the, the hidden power behind the crown, and before publication date, an alternative. Alternative book was available and marketed as Meghan Markle, Harry and the Palace Insider, Insiders. Valentine Lowe's gripping new revelation on the inner workings of royal life, and it was offered for sale at a mere five pounds fifty-two pence, and just one thousand five hundred words long, based on the serialization. The fact that this rose to number seven in the bestseller charts seems to show that more than 100 copies a day had been sold. Now, luckily, Amazon does allow uh, for full refunds of books that customers aren't happy with.
1: Yes, is that a good idea or not? I'm well, not sure.
2: <laughs> well, it is if you've been chiseled out with a little serialization. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the voice oh! of the Thames Valley. Ah! river radio
3: i think i like it
0: i think beat comes next on the list
1: Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list.
2: Indeed, indeed. Now, we all watched on television recently the moving funeral of the late Queen, and at the heart of the ceremony in Windsor were the military knights. And we're now delighted to welcome to the studio Simon for a military knight himself, who has written an interesting and excellent new book called Men at Arms, Six Centuries of Military Knights of Windsor, published by Zuleika. Simon, good morning and welcome. We're pleased that you've come along to the studio uh, and could join us today.
3: Thank you for having me. It's very kind of you.
2: It's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Now, your book, um, Men at Arms, and just for our listeners, it's Men at Arms, A-L-M-S, is fascinating. And we uh, have you all morning, which is great. Um, And I thought we'd start by uh, taking a look at the organisation of the knights and then move on through your book in more detail. So please uh, do tell us about the Order, its origins, and a little bit about how you came to be involved.
3: Well, um, we're all very old fogies, and the organisation we belong to is even older than us. It goes back to 1348, Mm -hmm. when King Edward III, who was a rumbustious medieval king, but very, very pious and religious and chivalrous, um, he had a problem with some impoverished knights he'd been beating up the french as he usually mm. did mm-hmm. and some of them been taken captive and ransomed back and their wives had sold every stick of furniture to get them back right and these knights were sort of milling around the court and saying to the king um look what we did for you eddie in france what are you going to do for us and his um reply was if you come to windsor live in the castle um, go across to the chapel four times a day, mm-hmm. pray for my soul, avidly, mm-hmm. and at each service say 150 Ave Maria's and 15 Lord's Prayers, I'll give you a free board and lodge in the castle. Um, and also, actually, a jolly good salary, like the canons, so his, uh, his aim was to give the knights enough money to make them live in the style to which they should be. Yeah. And we're still there. Right. But the um, the duties have been relaxed, and so, unfortunately, is the income.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Drat! <laughs>
1: so you you live in the castle yourself, do you?
3: Um, yeah, we live just opposite the chapel. So oh, there's okay. a line of thirteen houses, and us thirteen knights live in the, and look across the chapel.
2: Oh, that's mm. it. That was my next question: How many knights are there? And you say there are the 13. thirteen. There
3: are twelve wardroom and one governor. Oh, right. So, okay. um, yeah. Yes. Yeah,
2: right.
3: And we've, the numbers have varied over the centuries. We've had six hundred and fifty total. Right. Um, just over that. Um, and they're mostly military, um, mm-hmm. occasionally appears when they've been non military knights. Right, yes. Um, and even the military ones have often had other strings to their bow, been artists or musicians or um, just general doctors and people that's right yeah, you know, all sorts right. right
2: and so the governor is he there to to keep you under control that-
3: um we no, originally <laughs> the, the governor was elected from us um, right. just to act as a staff officer right? Uh, to yeah. keep us not so much in control but to see what was going on mm-hmm. but i think there was probably a scandal in about 1900 and they decided they had to put in a general to make sure we did behave properly <laughs> right um <laughs> the <child> show <laughs> called Strut was naughty. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, sound,
1: that sounds interesting. <laughs> Dare you tell us what he did?
3: <laughs> um, well, he was uh, he was actually quite a good army officer. He, went to, he fought in the Indian Mutiny as a, as a gunner. Right. Did very well, um, but something went wrong with his career because he was suddenly given a punishment posting to the Bengal woods. Mm. Um, he left the army shortly after and went into business, where he failed, really. hmm But at about 1900, he met a chap called Cavendish, who was related to the Dukes of Devonshire, very rich and very disorganised. Cavendish had been left Eton at the age of 16 and been sent by his family to go and explore Patagonia because he was obviously a problem child. Right. Um, Cavendish inherited lots of money. Strutt said, I'll look after the money for you. And he did look after the money for him. And he got his wife, Strutt's wife, went into seances and um, got Cavendish to sit in the seances. She put him in touch with his dead mother. His dead mother and the archangel Gabriel and various other people said, look, give all your money to the Struts. Oh, um, So he basically he gave his money to... He was a con man. And, yeah, he was a con man. But he, he then fell madly in love with an opera, uh, uh, soprano for the Dauly Cart, and they... Eventually got their money back through the courts,
1: ah, um, but wow. because it was a civil
3: case, they couldn't fast strut. Anyway, so was
1: he Gosh. then banned? Can you be sacked from being a military knight? Well, he
3: couldn't because the the statutes by which we live are the same statutes as the knights of the Garter, and in those days, you could only be sacked if you did something criminal or treasonable. Ah. And this is a civil case, so strut wasn't sacked. But since then, they put in a governor who is a general, yes. and they said you serve at his majesty's pleasure her majesty's pleasure whatever yes right. keep you in yeah, control <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yes
2: exactly <laughs> and what and what are the responsibilities um as a military knight and and, and do you have day-to-day um duties um, or? well we're
3: all retired so the, right. the duties are fairly light we the main duty is as is as the forward written by her majesty says yes um is to pray for the soul of the Sovereign and the Knights of the Garter. Mm-hmm. And we do that on Sundays mm-hmm. uh, during term time. But we also attend other services. There are four obits every year when we give thanks to the benefactors mm-hmm. of the chapel. Um, and they're quite amusing because... Uh, the dean reads out the names of some of the benefactors. There are obviously hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And after about the 78th name, he... I literally, I think it's the 78th name. He says, and now we come to more modern times, Henry VIII. <laughs> and then he, then he goes on. Right. Uh, um, and the, just, uh, we do other sort of things. So last Sunday, we had a laying up of a banner ceremony. Mm-hmm. Lord Sainsbury of Preston Candover had died. He was a knight of the garter. And when a knight of the garter dies, they block off his stall with a wreath. Right. Um, and then, at a time convenient to the family, they have an even song. Mm-hmm. And the, we, the knights, parade the banner of the dead knight up to the dean who lays it on the, the altar. Um, and then the eventually given back to the family. It's, it's a very moving ceremony. Mm. Actually. It, sounds
2: yes. it, it sounds it sounds mm. it. And when you're um, performing these duties, are you required? I mean, do you, do you have your uniforms as knights that
3: you have to wear? Yes, we've um, mm. William the Fourth was the last person to actually change our uniform so in what, 1833. What, so 1833. So we were okay. we were 1833 pattern officers on the unattached list uniform. Right. Um, so we have typically army. We have a very hot. Red scarlet coat right. in summer, and in winter we have a much lighter, cooler, right blue <laughs> blue coat. <cape.
2: laughs> so. Yes, so almost that British thing, is <laughs> In reverse, yeah. <laughs>
1: So, how were you involved in uh, in the late Queen's funeral? Then, so presumably, you're based in in Windsor Chapel. So, that whole um, second part of the the more intimate ceremony was
3: yes. We well, we did what we would normally do. We, we paraded into the chapel as part of the service, um, and then we sat in the nave, and, and it was actually very poignant because, of course, we some of our number. I'm I'm a relatively recent. The appointee, mm-hmm. one of our chaps, um, rode beside the Queen um, at her coronation nice. in the coach. Went, so, so he had oh. been involved with the, the Queen all all through his miniature career and life. Yes. So it was very moving for him to see her coffin brought oh, in and, and up to the choir. Yes, um, but yes, we we just simply paraded in as we normally do because yes. every matters we. Really, when we start the masses, we just parade in and we shamble in. We're meant to march, but we shamble and take our seats. Right? don't believe that um, in yeah, this
2: sure. I'm sure it's very smart. That's yeah, very smart.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you've chosen a couple of pieces of music um, for the programme today. And we're about to hear, I think it's quite a rising mm. military march. It's marvellous, it's really lovely. Uh, and it's by a military knight uh, himself, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Watts. Correct. So uh, tell me more about that piece of music, why have you chosen it?
3: Um, well, partly because it was written by Stuart, who was a very, very accomplished musician, uh, who used to be director of army music. Um, he was with the Grandier Guards, I don't think he was with them when Captain Robert Neerack was killed, but Neerack was, um, was, was kidnapped by the IRA from a pub in 1977. He was working undercover in Ireland. Um, right. and they took him to a field and basically tortured him a bit and killed him. Yeah. And Stuart Watts um, wrote this music for the Grenadier Guards to play because he was a Grenadier Guard, right. and um, Stuart was with the Grenadiers at the time. Uh, mm. Nerek got given a George Cross for what he did. Yes. So um, I thought it was useful to... Yeah, play play no, absolutely. Mm, yeah, and it's great
1: it. to hear that, mm. that story. I um, mean, mm-hmm. obviously it's, a, it's an awful story, but it's, yeah. it's nice to remember the sacrifices yes. um, that people have gone through and, and appreciate that, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah so that's great. So well, let's play this MUSIC <laughs>
2: listening to turning pages on river radio your book program if you've just joined us uh, we have author simon durford in the studio with us and if you want to catch up at the beginning of this you can listen again to our podcast which from whichever service you use and simply all you've got to do is search for turning pages on river radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you are
1: now, Simon, I know you've chosen three excerpts from, uh, from your book, but it was packed full of historical detail. So tell me, it, this is basically is the history of the, uh, the medieval knights. Is, is that right?
3: The military knights, the yeah. The knights, sorry. Uh, not just medieval. Of course, yeah. no. <laughs> it is. It's, um, well, it's a history of the knights. In order to give you some continuity, I tried to embed them in a sort of history of Britain or of England. So a little snippet about the history of England and the knights where they are in it.
1: Yeah, so to so. put it all in context. Yeah, because yeah, that's a really interesting thing, isn't it, to know how they relate to what's exactly. happening yeah. uh, round, round and about. Mm. So you start off with um, Edward III then. Yes. So this is the, um, the Hundred Years' War.
3: Indeed, yeah. We had a few crusaders, some of whom never got further than Belgium. Um, others went to, to get themselves knighted in uh, Jerusalem, but we've had all sorts so, you know, mostly ministries as I say
1: Yeah, so what's, uh, what's your favourite um, period when you were doing your research
3: um, I like all of it ah. because and actually I quite like the fact that it's, it sort of gives a, a view of how Britain has changed socially and militarily of course and in every other way So, I, I, I like the way it flows yes. the history of England, England is a, an interesting place and the history is very interesting
1: yeah uh, well absolutely <laughs> absolutely I couldn't agree with you more and uh, I know one of the stories that I particularly liked um was the story about um prince Hal so henry henry v as as he ended up as. Um, because I like my Shakespeare. And, uh, and we know that Shakespeare talks about a little scratch, I think, um, in terms of prin- that Prince Hal had. He doesn't go into great details, but I know he was very famous for having an arrow in his eye and into his nose, wasn't it? Um, the back of Shrewsbury, yeah. into his cheek, yeah. Yes. And you recount a story, so please tell me, tell, tell well, everybody we, about me.
3: I put that in because um, we've had quite a number of medical nights. Uh, Warrior Kings got injured. like Prince Hal did, yeah, Um, and so they became quite keen on having good doctors around. And what happened with Prince Hal was he was facing Harry Hotspur and his lot, he got an arrow through his cheek that went all the way through, and the head of the arrow sort of based itself at the base of Hal's spine. Gosh! The doctors at the time, usually the best technique was to push it all the way through, Right. And pull it out the other side because of the barbs on the arrowhead. That's
1: right, so if you pull the barbs that, Exactly that's the whole yeah. idea, isn't it, is to, to rupture your Quite. So body. but they,
3: they had to try and do that because they were said the arrowhead was right at the back of the spine. Yeah. So they tried to pull it out where it would come in, the shaft came away, leaving the head of the arrow embedded right at the back of ah. Prince Hal's face and head. Right. whereupon they thought this is a bad idea to be a doctor to a prince who's about to die, really. <laughs> yes. So they recommended that the, the king get hold of a chap called Bradmore, who some people say was sitting in jail at the time because he was a very accomplished surgeon, but he was also quite an accomplished counterfeiter of money. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, he was, he was brought out to come and see what he could do, and he very cleverly built a set of tongs that he could put into the wound, yes. down to where the arrowhead was. Inside the tongs, he put a thread, that if he twisted the thread, he could expand the tongs. Yes. So he put the tongs into the shaft of the arrowhead, where the shaft would go, um, expanded them, and then he managed to ease the arrowhead out. But the, in, Before he, well, he was building the tongs, he explored the wound to make it bigger, and then after he had taken the arrowhead out, in medical terms, he did something pretty clever. He didn't just sew it up. He continued to explore the wound with diminishing size probes. So it just healed from the inside out. Ah, okay. Um, very clever chap.
1: And this, mm. is of course, it's all without anaesthetic.
3: Yes, exactly. Mm. Um, and no antibiotics either or anything else. He was very worried about tetanus. Well, he wrote a description of how he'd done it.
1: Yeah,
3: and he said he was very worried about spasms, which I presume was tetanus. Yeah. Gosh. So,
1: tell me about the military knights' involvement. Was Bradbury a military
3: knight? No, he wasn't. But his, um, he left a, a tome, which he, which then became picked up by another military knight, another doctor who, who did become a military knight, Charles Frees. And then there was immediately after that there was another doctor called Lewis of Carlisle, who's a polymath, who was an astrologer. He was a character of Aragon's Doctor. Um, He was also the White Queen's Doctor, and Uh also Margaret Beaufort. And when the White Queen, the widow of Edward IV, was taking refuge from her brother-in-law, Richard III, um, Lewis of Carlisle acted as a go-between between between her and Margaret Beaufort. Uh, Richard III found out about it and threw Lewis in the tower and confiscated all his calculations for astrology, which really annoyed him. So Lewis recalculated various eclipses, he was a few seconds different to his first calculation because he was further west. Ah! But, uh, you know, not not many doctors nowadays could calculate eclipses. No, I just
1: I do think that's quite interesting, isn't it? That our um, our ancestors were polymaths. They, they were. They were yeah. didn't just focus on yes. one particular. Aspect, um, and you think, well, where, yeah. where have we gone wrong? I
2: know uh, where we now uh, specialize, and that's it, yes. we just do, it's just one subject, uh, just, just one field, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very much so. Very much
3: yeah. so. That's
1: quite interesting. The military knights actually came from a wide variety,
3: yes, of um, well, we always have with some um, a huge variety of you know what the different branches of the military, but also different social backgrounds but you know half have been up from the ranks and others have been sort of aristocrats we've had people rubbing shoulders who've been literally aristocrats yes um with other people who dug potatoes with bare feet till they were 15 as irish tenant farmers and then became venture commissioned. so it's um it's a very interesting group mm. yeah very,
1: really. very very much, much so very much, yeah.
2: Yeah. Now, we have, we've got um, a number of readings. The first of the three readings um, is about the Spanish Armada, and uh, I was really interested in the description of the colours of the English boats. By way of introduction, before the reading, give us a little bit of background to that.
3: To the colours, yes. Oh Yes. Well, well I, I don't know much about the colours, oh, but right. I, know, <laughs> I know they were very colourful. Yeah. because, uh, And, of course, they, um, the colours, to some extent, meant something. The 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 galleasses that the Spanish had were all red and so on. Um, But I think it was mostly just people showing off their sort of ability to buy paint, right? (laughs) (laughs) The
2: the Dulux colour chart on the Armada. (laughs) Well, anyway, here, here we got the reading.
1: We have indeed.
2: The Spanish Armada Jonas Bradbury delivers the challenge. On 19th of July, the Spanish were sighted off the Lizard but the 105 English ships in Plymouth were hemmed in by the tide. By the time the Armada had reached the Ediston Rocks, however, the English were out. They split into two groups. The larger section under Lord Howard of Effingham went to the south, while a smaller group under Vice Admiral Sir Francis Drake remained to the north. Drake's flagship, the famous Revenge, was unmistakably painted in green and white harlequins. All the ships were gaudy. Whatever else, the battle that ranged up the Channel must have been colourful to watch. The four Spanish galleasses, hybrid sailing ships with banks of rowing slaves, had red upper works, red oars and sails sporting bloody swords. The banners, symbols and multitude of pennants must have looked glorious. Both sides sailed under the cross of St George commanding a pinnace in lord howard's flotilla was another future poor knight named jonas bradbury there had been no declaration of war so lord howard sent bradbury to run up to within hailing distance of the spaniards and issue a challenge bradbury immediately sailed straight in towards the center of the massive spanish fleet and fired a token shot at the huge vessels towering above his pinnace which was appropriately named disdain he then beat a quick retreat to safety The action gets a mention in a patriotic historical novel of 1838 in which Simon Mainsail is sitting in a pub in Chatham when the disdain happens to square her yards in the harbour. A landlubber comments that he wouldn't know if she was squaring her yards or inches. Simon waxes lyrical, saying that the disdain could sail before the wind as bravely as a witch in a sieve before continuing... I was in her off the Lizard when we first had sight of the Spanish Armada, and Captain Jonas Bradbury was her captain, a right gallant gentleman and a skilful. Well, when my Lord Admiral had allowed the villain Spaniards, with all their host of big ships amounting to a 160 sail, to pass him by as they did, swaggering it along like very bullies as they were, We in the disdain were sent to challenge them to the fight, at which we lost no time, for we straight bore down upon the nearest, and discharged our ordnance at her. Then up came my Lord Admiral in the Ark Royal, giving to the first galleon of the enemy such a broadside as made her shiver in all her timbers. Close at his stern came Drake in the revenge, Sir John Hawkins in the victory, and Sir Martin Frobisher in the triumph, which was the biggest of all our ships, and they soon began to fire away like mad. Other of our craft followed, and they of the Armada after a while liked not our salutations, I assure you, for they that were nighest to us bore away as if old Clouty was at their heels, but not before we had done them great damagement.' Burnt one of their larger ships and took another, in which we found 55,000 ducats, whereof I spent my share, for it was all divided amongst the sailors, in drinking confusion to all villain Spaniards.
1: Oh, good to see Indeed. they made their money out they of did, that. They did,
2: they did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cashed in. Absolutely.
1: So, Simon, very quickly, tell us... Position the Spanish Armada in our history, just in case people are
3: not aware. The Spanish Armada came about because um, Philip of Spain was married to Mary Tudor. Um, but when Mary Tudor died, the throne went to Elizabeth. Um, very Protestant. Philip of Spain was very Catholic. He wanted to get back into... Low countries of Holland and also Britain. And eventually, after lots of failed negotiations on all sides and saber-rattling, he sent an armada, lots of a big fleet, to go and um, invade Britain. Yes. Um, and that's how it came about. We had, we had another poor knight there as well, a chap called Boddenham, who was Drake's um, right-hand man. Oh, yes. And although um, Drake gets a good write-up in that e- extract, in fact, he was a pretty naughty man. He, he was told by um, Howard to light a lantern and lead the British fleet behind the Spanish Armada, up the channel. Right. But Drake turned his lantern off, turned around and went back to get a ship full of treasure, the Spanish treasure galleon. <laughs> oh and the no. British fleet were completely scattered across the, oh. the channel because they had no Drake to follow. Oh, and correct. Drake made himself a fortune and Frobisher got very angry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I've got to say, I always think, when I look at the Spanish Armada, I always think that um, it, uh, we were lucky with the weather.
3: <laughs> yeah, very lucky with the weather. Very, very lucky with the Protestant win one. Yes. right yeah.
1: Absolutely, and the Spanish didn't... Yeah. Um, so we didn't really beat them, we were just sort of... Looking. Yes, that,
3: that, we were very lucky. I think um, had it would have been very difficult for the Spanish to actually arrange for their invasion force to come across, yes. even if we hadn't beaten them like we did. But in, in you're absolutely right. The Spanish were um, scattered by the winds. They were... Um firing into the wind a lot of the time, so we were we were very lucky, yeah, that's mm. right,
1: but uh, that's a story about Drake rushing off for the treasure yes. uh. <laughs> <laughs> instead of um, yes. instead of doing his job, That's outrageous. <laughs> So what I loved about the book was that, it's that sort of combination of history, which I absolutely adore, and the nice thing about history is it's just made up of stories. So you've got really interesting facts about things like battles, and then you've got that lovely sort of humorous side of nature, um, where you've got the story of Drake pushing off and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nicking,
2: <laughs> nicking, nicking the silver, and or rather the, the gold. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you've got these sort of light-hearted interludes, haven't you? Sort of woven in, well, uh, in between.
3: Real life mm, yes yeah, yes absolutely
1: it's a which is shocking isn't it mm.
3: um and fun <laughs> and, and fun. total <laughs> fun
1: yeah so we're mm. now going to um talk about um a parrot
2: yes and this was a lovely which I, story i think this is really, i love this story about uh about casanova and the parrot and the, and, the, and the deaf mm. magistrate. <laughs> <laughs> blind magistrate
3: blind magistrate
2: blind magistrates i beg <laughs> your pardon yeah blind magistrate <laughs> i beg your pardon yes. <laughs> yes
3: yes so do you want to get Um, Yeah, sure. Amongst our non-military poor knights, military knights, we had Sir John Fielding, who was actually the novelist Henry Fielding's brother. Oh, And uh, Fielding wanted to join the Navy, but he was blinded by the age of 17. So he went and went into the law, followed his brother, because his brother was chief magistrate of Bow Bow Street. Um, When his brother died, John Fielding took over. He was... um, he was said to be able to recognise 3,000 criminals by their voice alone being blind he was a very good man he was very charitable he sat on various foundations for fallen women and foundlings and destitute people he was enlightened he didn't like imprisoning people he preferred to educate them back into society so he was was an enlightened chap Um, but he also had a run in with Casanova
2: yes Right, and, and here we have the, uh, the encounter.
1: <laughs> we do indeed.
2: Sir so John Fielding, Casanova and the parrot. On the bench, he, Sir John Fielding, dealt with murder, theft, blackmail, forgery and prostitution. The streets of London were dangerous throughout the 18th century. Killing was common, but even relatively minor violence was taken seriously, as when Giacomo Casanova was brought before Fielding in 1764. The great Italian lover had taken a shine to 17-year-old Mademoiselle Marianne Charpion. She was the daughter of a family he already knew, who ran bawdy houses and fleeced men of their money. She seems to have found Casanova less attractive than he found her, in which case she was outrageously manipulated. She was young and trapped in a sleazy world, but she did behave unwisely, quite possibly on the orders of her mother and aunts. It has been suggested that the family were worried that Casanova knew too much about their financial affairs and decided to set him up. Either way, Marianne flirted with him as, perhaps, only an expert, if young, courtesan could. He lavished charm and money on her, but without achieving the intimacy he craved. On one occasion, she allowed him to work matters up to a peak in bed, but then refused consummation and he nearly strangled her. She was no virgin, he had caught her making the beast with two backs with her hairdresser and had taken his cane to the young coiffure. In the end he felt teased beyond endurance and had her aunts arrested for fraud. They retaliated by having him arrested as well. He was seized when he left a ball hosted by the Duchess of Grafton and was charged with threatening a young lady. After some confusion Fielding bound him over to keep the peace, but Casanova was still out for revenge. After a few days, he bought a parrot and taught it to say, La Chapion is an even greater trollop than her mother. He then put the bird up for sale in the exchange with a price tag of 50 guineas. Those who knew Charpion were amused, as Marianne seems to have been, but the aunts were furious and sought legal advice. Unfortunately for them, it was felt that a parrot could not be sued for libel. In his memoirs, Casanova has nothing but praise for Fielding, the blind magistrate who spoke to him in fluent Italian. Marianne Sharpion went on to charm several men. Lord Grosvenor is reported to have bought her the defamatory parrot as a gift. Some years later, she captured the attentions of the notorious rake and radical John Wilkes and kept his interest for an unusually long four years.
1: Well, that's a fantastic story. I
2: <laughs> <laughs> think it's really good enough teaching the parrot,
1: <laughs> I know. And of course, sort of mistresses and prostitution mm. was really common mm. in the
3: um, It was, yes. In in they were the days. days.
1: They yeah. were indeed, weren't they? Yeah. Yes, absolutely.
2: Gosh, yes. Now, our third piece takes us into the heart of the First World War and introduces us to um, quite a remarkable uh, man, the regimental Sergeant Major Plunkett. Um, and the piece that we've got does it gave an idea of how remarkable he was, but have you got a little bit more background? Was, it, was he from an Irish family with the name of Plunkett?
3: He was one of our many Irishmen. Um, I was amazed looking at the research for this, how many of our knights had come from Ireland. Mm. But, of course, they were. it was, or is, uh, uh, effectively an organisation for people who are, are down with their luck and not yes. very well off. So a number of the Irish in the mm. army were not so. very well off, so they ended up in Windsor. And, um, yes, he was from an Irish family. His mm. father had served in the the same regiment as he did um, and he was a pretty typical irishman in right, the right, army yeah, and yeah, he, he yeah. joined the army as a bandsman became a regimental sergeant major he only had two medals at the start of the first world war but he ended up with five gallantry awards five yeah, so he, he got um, a military cross and uh, a dcm very quickly Gosh, and then yeah. three DSOs and a distinct, d- distinguished service order is quite a senior medal. He got Fifth. three of them, which made him about ten times more unusual than somebody with a Victoria Cross. Really? But yes. He was recommended for the Victoria Cross twice. Re- gosh, twice. No, but didn't gosh.
1: but didn't receive it. But didn't receive this. it. No. Oh.
3: So,
2: well, we got a little bit um, about um, RSM Plunkett. Right. Let me find that then.
1: Here it is.
2: R.S.M. Plunkett's Baptism by Fire Two weeks after the declaration of war, Plunkett had his baptism of fire near St. Symphorien at Mons. The Battle of Mons and the subsequent retreat were messy affairs in which the battalion fought hard and well. The unit's war diary is evocative and tells of hardship and bravery over weeks. In the first 72 hours alone, the battalion lost over half its strength killed, wounded or missing and had to retire 35 miles, as the crow flies, to Caudry near Combray. Sergeant Major Plunkett was awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal, gazetted on 17 December 1914, for conspicuous good work and repeatedly distinguishing himself under fire. Fourteen days after this medal was gazetted, his name appeared again for having been awarded one of the first ever military crosses. No citation is given, but it seems likely it was for an incident at Cordray in which his commanding officer, Lieutenant-Colonel Sidgen J.A. Cox, was wounded. Cox wrote in the war diary that Plunkett had assisted in carrying me out of action, displaying great coolness and devotion under a heavy shell and rifle fire. On another occasion at around this time, Plunkett, who was in charge of the battalion's ammunition carts, came across a bridge blocked by a dead horse. Some sappers tried to remove it, but were prevented by heavy shelling. A cavalry officer then called for volunteers to move the corpse. When Plunkett found that he was the only volunteer to step forward, he simply ordered six men to fall in, marched them up to the bridge and pushed the horse over. At 0200 hours on the 26th of November, Plunkett and his men were relieved by the 186th Brigade of the 62nd Division. They marched five miles to dugouts on the Hindenburg Line, falling asleep on the roadside as soon as they arrived. At 10.30 hours, they were ordered to march a further 10 miles to another village, but they took it easy, arriving at 4.30pm. Plunkett wrote... I halted a mile from our destination, as we were rather ragged in formation. When told how far they had to go, these men, who had fought for three days continuously in a wood, without sleep, had marched five miles on a pitch-dark night through mud and slush, and after two hours' rest had marched nine miles more, pulled themselves together and finished the tenth mile singing themselves in. I have fought with many regiments in this war but the achievements of the nineteenth battalion of the royal welsh fusiliers and the remainder of the hundred ninth infantry brigade in taking bourlon wood on the twenty third of november nineteen seventeen with no assistance from tanks smoke barrages etc and only a few minutes preliminary artillery bombardment capturing at least 500 prisoners with many machine guns then repelling counterattacks for 3 days without sleep subsisting on iron ration food only handing over the wood intact marching 50 miles to the rear after the brigade had suffered 75% casualties both in officers and of men and finishing the last mile of the march in high spirits i place second to none
1: i've got to say that's yeah. an amazing Isn't it? story yeah
2: exactly and then just from that i mean when you said that um he was uh, he was nominated oh, if that's a word twice for a, a victoria cross i think he he should have got it but can you t- tell us about how, how with a victoria cross obviously an officer will put a name forward so who makes the decision to award it and uh, or not in the case maybe
3: um well, there's, it was made I presume the decision goes eventually up to the, the monarch right. but the, um, <clears throat> on the recommendation of senior officers and mm-hmm. so on. But it hasn't always been like that. We've had um, three people the Victoria Cross who have been militia knights. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was a chap called uh, Colonel Francis Cornwallis Maud. Mm-hmm. And in his day, which was only three or four years after the Victoria Cross had been instituted, um, he won his in the Indian Mutiny. The system was that the commanding officer, if there had been a very good battle the unit would behave particularly bravely he would ask the commanding officer of the unit to hold a ballot to see which person the unit right. thought should get the victoria cross and in Maud's case uh, he held the ballot his soldiers came back and said our officers eligible he said i do not know i'll find out mm-hmm. and um, they were eligible so the men voted him but right. but he wasn't actually given it then he was—he uh, you know, was turned down, and he, he expected to be turned down. He wasn't upset by that at all. Mm. But eventually, he, he was recommended three times for Victoria Cross and got it.
2: Right, ah, interesting. So,
3: and the, of the three Victoria Crosses we've had, um, two of the recipients have actually had to pawn the medal or sell them. Oh, oh, uh, ah, yeah. dear, uh, so, yeah. so sad. Yes, that's very sad, isn't it? Is, it, isn't it? it? Yeah.
1: So deserving of a position as a military. Yes, Knight I mean
3: Maud, Maud had to sell his. He sold his to an American. Who and when? Then, when Maud became a military cross and had to wear uniform, the American very kindly loaned ah, it back to him to wear on his uniform until he died when he met, went back to America.
1: Right, right. So that's nice.
3: Yeah, yeah. No. And
2: and it was instituted well, obviously by Victoria, Queen Victoria. In what in in what year did uh...
3: Uh, the Crimean War? Oh, right. Uh, the, yes, um, is for bravery originally yeah. for bravery in the Crimean War, but subsequently as well. So So I
1: want to talk about the Crimean War because that's an amazing story. But before we do that, let's just have a little bit of light music. And your second choice is from the comic opera, Operetta? Opera? Uh, Patience by Gilbert and Sullivan. Which I'm a big Gilbert and Sullivan fan, I've got to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is all about the heavy dragoons. So what's the connection with heavy dragoons?
3: Um, well, heavy dragoons don't actually exist, I have to say. Ah, there, are, there, are, there are dragoons, <laughs> but not heavy ones. <laughs> um, the, um, my next-door neighbour's a dragoon, but um, I just like the music. And I, like, I like this. I love Gilbert and Sullivan. I love the way he poked fun front of the army. Mm. Yes. This is um, you know, a poking in front of the army, the bombastic military...
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let's listen to it now.
0: If you want to receipt for that popular mystery, known to the world as a heaven yes, goose. Yes, yes, I yes, 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 yes. take all the remarkable people in history, rattle them all to a popular tune. Lord Nelson on board of the victory Genius of Bismarck devising a plan The humor of Theodore which sounds contradictory, coolness of Padgett about to pen the science of Julian, the eminent musical, Richard Macaulay, who wrote of Queen Anne. The pathos of Paddy is rendered by Musico, of a Bishop of Soldier The dash of a glossy divestment of crackery, narrative powers of Dickens and Thackeray, Victor Emmanuel, Picot in Pavlo, Thomas Aquinas and Dr. S. Several, Tupper and Tennyson, Daniel and Defoe, Anthony and to Baptist and to
1: so that is the song from Act One of Patience by the fabulously successful. Victorian uh, duo Gilbert and Sullivan. And I just think how they get all those words. I know. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and remember them <laughs> yes.
1: is, is just amazing. But yeah, so I wanted to just very quickly go to um, talk about, when you talk about dragoons, and uh, and the Charge of the Light Brigade, actually. Because that is an amazing story about, mm. I mean, obviously it was one of the most horrendous Charges, I would imagine, that's that's ever happened. A whole series of miscommunication, but the bravery of the uh, the gentlemen, the the men that charged, is phenomenal, isn't it?
3: They did their job. Mm. They, yeah. uh, you, you're right. It was um a mistaken order. That, that's happened a number of times in British history. Yes, uh, Minden as well as well. But anyway, the uh, Raglan sent this order to charge a set of guns. The order came through, but they didn't know which guns they were meant to be charging. Couldn't see the guns they were meant to be charging. So they started charging different guns. Um, and they had to ride over a mile into yes. into thick fire from the guns themselves and from the flanks. Yes. Um, they charged, they got there, they turned around and came back. And with them went a dog, actually. But, um,
1: and how, how many survived?
3: About 50% survived unwounded. Wow. Um, so that's actually... Phenomenal, mm. yeah exactly. And uh, but fifty percent of the horses were killed too, and, and um, so a lot, and a lot of bravery. Though we had one poor knight, or well, militia knight, who, who rode in the charge. chap called Pickworth. He was recommended as the VC too, but didn't get it. Right. And his horse was killed down to him, and he escaped by holding onto the stirrups of other people. Wow! Well, um, but he went through the end and came back, and it was his regiment that had the dog.
1: Oh, right, the dog. and did the dog
3: survive? The dog did survive, was wounded. Mm-hmm. When went back to England, yeah. Rafael Terrier called Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Excellent. Well done. Well done, Jeremy.
0: Jeremy
1: yes. <laughs> so, obviously, as you've been doing all this research and you've come across these phenomenal stories, what's your favourite?
3: Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm, putting you, I'm putting you on, on, the, on the spot um, now. Well, I go with you, I think, the medical one, uh, the chap Prince Harland has. Oh, do you? Yes, because, well, I have a sort of medical background myself, and I think it's very, very clever. And we lost a lot of. Um, medical expertise in the in the meantime um i don't there was a period for several centuries where people wouldn't have done that they would have immediately sewn up the wound and that sort of stuff yes um but those guys back in medieval days were much cleverer than people give them credit for and we lost a bit in between in between time and it wasn't until the first world war that surgeons suddenly realized they shouldn't sew up wounds immediately and that's, so they regained the knowledge.
1: That's an incredible mm, distance, isn't yes. it, between mm. the 1100s, well, mm. to the 1900s. Yes. Uh, so what happened? Where did our medical knowledge go? Because presumably the books still survived.
3: Um, they, they did, but medical people are as arrogant as anybody else and they tend to think <laughs> they can do better and can improve things and make things worse while they do so. Yes, and, um, yes.
1: Yeah, that is true. Simon, it's been a real delight chatting to you uh, about the book and we would like to recommend
2: We certainly would, yes Men at
1: Arms, Six Centuries of the Military Knights of Windsor by Simon Danford Yes, indeed So thank you
2: Indeed we do, yes, thank you Simon, it was great
1: Yeah, so um, were you a big reader of Military Knight books? I mean, were you uh... Well,
3: I was... um... I loved Hornblower as a child. Oh, I loved Hornblower, um, yes. (laughs) And um, I used to read very avidly until I got a job and couldn't do it anymore.
1: (laughs) Job shouldn't Um, stop you. So you know Bernard Cornwell, who writes the sharp novels? So my favourite story about Bernard Cornwell is that he read all the Hornblower books totally fixated by them, and decided that Hornblower Sharp basically is Hornblower on land. And he analysed the books to work out um, when does he sort of have an adventure and when does he fall in love and things, and then basically just transposed that into sharps. And I love my sharp as well. (laughs) So books we've been recommending today are Lucy Worsley, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman, published by Hodder and Stoughton.
2: Um, Annie uh, Knows' A Man's Place, published by uh, Seven Stories Press.
1: And F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, published by Penguin Books.
2: And, of course, Simon Doenford's Men at Arms, Six Centuries of Military Nights of Windsor, published by Zuleika.
1: Yes, absolutely. So many thanks indeed for listening to Turning Pages today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, You can catch our programme between 11 and 12... Um, every Wednesday. And if you want to catch up on any past programs that you might have missed, then Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. You just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. And you'll find it. So thank you for joining us. And um, thank you also to Simon for a really entertaining programme today. I've thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed yes. it. Um, and I've got to say, the book's marvellous. Yes. It
2: is indeed, it is indeed.
1: Yeah, and um, we look forward to you joining us next week. So from Julian and myself, bye-bye. bye.
3: In a world where radio
0: stations are ten a penny. Do I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, lad. Thank you. There is one radio station. There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one that stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. <laughs> it's a occasion for precipitation. Stack chips with a rainy day. Jay, Jay, Jay. rain is back. With Little Miss Sunshine, Rihanna, where you at? You have my heart, and we'll never be worlds apart. Maybe in magazines, but you still be my star. Baby, cause in the dark, you can't see shiny cars.